I'm knowledge development lawyer Miri Stickland and I'm joined today by a trio of partners from our private wealth team. We have Charles Mieville from our residential property team, Emma Gillies from our private client team and Rosie Shim from the family team. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. Hi Mary. So today we're going to be looking at potential issues that might arise for high net worth US families considering relocating to the UK or looking to invest in residential property in the UK. So Charlie, can I come to you first and ask what's the outlook for the UK residential property market, both as a whole, but also with a particular eye on the prime central London property market? Yes, of course. Thanks, Miri. Well, um, for the whole, looking at the country as a whole, due to the pandemic, country properties are still commanding a premium and have done in terms of price throughout the pandemic. The problem with it is that there's a serious lack of supply of them and still quite large demand. So that's helping to bolster prices um, and, and even see quite large price increases, particularly around sort of commutable areas, but pushing it further out than the conventional areas we, we, we used to see. Generally, it's a domestic market at the moment um, due to lockdown and the lack of ability to travel. Um, But the agents that I'm talking to say this is set to change as soon as as the travel corridors reopen properly. And and they've got a long list of people jumping at the bit to come over and snap up some bargains uh, as they see it. Uh, We're told that buyers from the Far East are very keen on on country properties, particularly near boarding schools for their children. And I think that will be their focus when when they return. And also there's a well-proven love of the Cotswolds for American buyers, which we've read about quite a bit recently. And I've actually spoken to various search agents about who, who've, who've confirmed that it is the case um, and, and that crazy prices are being reached in the country. Turning to the London market, large prime properties or, or those close to good schools and out, or ones that have outside space have continued to do well throughout the pandemic. But it's the same story as the countryside. There's a lack of supply um, uh, there is quite a lot of demand. There's a lot of off-market um, transactional activity, so it's quite difficult to gauge exactly what's going on until the land registry data is is processed in due course. The, the real losers, I guess, over the last 12 to 18 months have been smaller properties with no outside space, um, so they're sort of lingering at the moment. Um, outer zones of London are being are proving very popular. People not wanting to go too far afield, but venturing out to sort of zones five and six. Uh, so they can still reach the city, but just have a little bit more family space. Um, So those prices are holding up. And um, interestingly enough, uh, Savills uh, commented on the the, the London market recently and said that the first quarter of this year saw more £5 million plus purchases than at any time since 2014, um, which is, is an interesting reflection on the state of the market. But they only think that this will filter through to the £10 million plus bracket once the international buyers return. Um, So I think a lot of people are waiting for that to see where the market will go. Interestingly, the SDLT holidays have been a major incentive at every price range, uh, which I hadn't expected. I thought perhaps it might have been more uh, more of a thing at the the, the lower price point, but actually throughout all prices, everyone's been very keen to wrap up deals. And we had over 200 completions uh, in the month of June, and we were really pushing things through. So, uh, and that's at every level of, uh, of price. People seem less bothered about the recently introduced 2% uh, non-resident SDLT charge. But again, maybe that will become more more of an issue once people from abroad are moving over and and, and looking at prices. Maybe it will be factored into price points on houses as well and, and asking prices. And in terms of the SDLT holiday relief that we've had during the pandemic, that's been reduced to a maximum of 
two and a half thousand pounds now until the end of September. Um, so there's a little bit of pressure off. People aren't so worried about, about missing a big saving. So um, that doesn't seem to factor in so much um, to people's plans. Obviously, there's speculation about how long these price rises are sustainable that we've seen over the last year or so. And I think with cheap borrowing and favourable exchange rates for foreign buyers, if that will help bolster prices for the time being. Um, but equally, we have the end of the furlough scheme coming up. And I mean, it will be interesting to see how that impacts on prices and whether there's suddenly a flood of properties to the market with people having to sell, relocate, downsize. London has obviously had the smallest growth throughout this period. Uh, the countryside has done very well, but um, time will tell what happens in, in the coming months. So, Charlie, you mentioned the recent SDLT holiday and also a few other changes that have been happening with SDLT. Can you talk us through some of the recent changes in the UK's property tax regime? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, um, throughout the pandemic, um, or for, for a large part of it, there has been a, a stamp duty holiday, which has amounted to almost a £15,000 saving at, at, at most uh, for, for many of our clients on their purchases, whether it's a, a first property or an additional property that they're acquiring. This expired in uh, at the end of June. So there was a huge flurry, as I mentioned, of completions um, uh, at the end of June. Everyone was very focused on getting deals done at every single price point. So that that's that's been great a great saving on the one hand, but on the other hand, it has pushed prices up, um, and um, you know there's been such activity and, and demand for people to move that sellers have been able to ask more money, and it's arguable actually whether um, the the STLT saving has has made any difference for people at the bottom end of the of the transaction values because obviously prices have risen so much that actually the net effect is is not much of a saving, um, but it has helped sort of fuel the property market and keep it going. Um, as I said, that's mostly come to an end. But there's a maximum £2,500 saving until the end of September now. The other change I alluded to was the 2% non-resident SDLT charge, which came in in April this year. Um, and this is predominantly aimed at people who spend, um, well, as the legislation reads, less than 183 continuous days in the run-up to completion. Um, they will be charged an additional 2% stamp duty. If they go on to spend 183 days over the course of the year before completion and the year after completion, it can be clawed back. Um, so it very much depends on people's sort of resident status. But as I said, it hasn't really been something that we've been asked a lot about, given most foreign buyers can't get over to the UK to view property at the moment. Thanks, Charlie. And it's also important to think about sort of specific UK-US cross-border issues that can arise from US-connected people owning, or persons, I should say, uh, owning UK property. Emma, can I bring you in and ask you to explain some of the key cross-border issues at play and some of the planning options that might be available to protect against those risks? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think probably the first and the main one to, to talk about is the exposure to UK inheritance tax that comes with buying uh, UK property. Uh, and that's because those who are not UK domiciled are only exposed to inheritance tax on UK assets. So as soon as somebody comes from overseas and buys a UK property, they're buying into an inheritance tax exposure. Um, and our inheritance tax is charged at a rate of 40%, which is actually uh, specifically in relation to the, to the US um, purchasers. It's actually the same as the US estate tax rate. But at the same time, it might really catch them by surprise because in the US, there's a much more generous exemption amount 
from estate taxes, uh, currently $11.7 million. Whereas in the UK, we have only 325,000 pounds that can be left free of inheritance tax. Um, so that's going to be <clears throat> a consideration that might, that might catch people unawares. Um, so in terms of how we deal with that, I mean, in the past, it would have been very common planning for overseas individuals to purchase UK property through a non-UK registered holding company. Because the, the way that would work is that instead of owning an interest in UK property, they would own shares in a non-UK company. And because they're only exposed to inheritance tax on UK assets, they don't have any exposure through that setup. Um, but there, was, uh, there were anti-avoidance rules introduced in April 2017, which mean that that no longer works. Um, so now where, where uh, a purchase is structured in that way, the shares in the non-UK company are treated as though they were UK assets to the extent that they their value reflects that underlying residential property. So essentially, it sort of puts that sort of planning opportunity to bed. So in terms of where people will turn now, I mean, I suppose um, taking commercial borrowing is one option. If they take a mortgage on the acquisition of the property, then that mortgage debt should be deductible um, against the value of the property for inheritance tax purposes. Um, so, you know, of course, that's good from an inheritance tax perspective, um, but it does come at the cost of paying interest to the bank. A an extra point there for, for US purchasers is that a lot of UK mortgage products um, can give rise to quite adverse US tax consequences. So it's certainly somewhere that, that US purchasers should be taking US tax advice when they're looking at their mortgage options. Um, because there can be some traps for the unwary there. And would another option be to borrow from friends or family members instead? Potentially. Um, I mean, if people do borrow from friends or family members, I suppose the classic scenario would be child borrows from parents to buy property um, to live in. Um, in that scenario, the debt should still be deductible um, against the value of the property for inheritance tax purposes. So I suppose in that sense, it achieves the same objective. But unfortunately, the sort of counter to that, and this again is something that was introduced through the changes in 2017, is that now the benefit of the debt in the lender's hands, so the parents' hands, will now be subject to inheritance tax. And so effectively what you're doing is moving the inheritance tax exposure from the younger generation to the elder generation, um, which is normally completely the opposite to what we're trying to achieve when we're doing, uh, when we're engaging in estate planning um, for US clients. So, I mean, really the options are, are relatively limited. Um, where we're talking about a married couple, um, we'll always encourage the clients to make sure that they have um, an estate plan that is structured to at least take advantage of spousal exemptions and defer taxes until the second death. Beyond that, it tends to come down to taking out life insurance. So rather than planning to mitigate the inheritance tax, instead accepting that there'll be an inheritance tax burden and, and simply taking out insurance to pay the tax bill when it comes. Um, I suppose the net effect is the same. Um, so, so that tends to be where, where people land, which, which isn't very exciting, um, but it is effective. 
so we've talked quite a lot about inheritance tax. Uh, we also have capital gains tax in the UK. Are there capital gains tax issues that people should consider here as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and especially in the context of um, US connected uh, buyers, because there's a bit of a mismatch between how the US and the UK will tax capital gains that are realised on the sale of, um, of the, the UK home. So from the UK perspective, as, as many people will know, if you do realise a capital gain when you sell your home, um, it shouldn't be subject to tax because there's a full main residence relief available. So that's something that that's that's something that we're we're sort of given for free in the UK. But unfortunately, the same isn't the case in the US. So if you have a US citizen who's living in the UK, um, the US, by virtue of their citizenship, retains the right to tax them. And the US only provides for limited relief from tax on the, the sale of, of the main home. So it can cause the UK relief in that scenario to be wasted. There will be many cases where that just um, it is what it is and, and needs to be accepted. Um, but there might be some opportunities where perhaps you have a married couple, one is a US citizen and the other is not, that may be preferable to hold the property um, in the name of the non-US citizen spouse and to be able to then benefit from the unlimited uh, relief on the disposal. There are a couple of uh, sort of red flags to raise there though. Um, the first is that from the US perspective, as I understand it, if a US citizen spouse makes a gift to a non-US citizen spouse, there is no spouse exemption on that gift. So it could give rise to unintended US tax consequences. The other point, of course, is a non-tax point uh, and thinking about is that really the, the wisest thing to do um, when we also need to be mindful of asset protection issues. And you thought some rather nicely there to bring Rosie into the conversation. In terms of protecting assets for the future, what are some of the considerations that US families might want to bear in mind? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the purchasing of UK property could provide the impetus for families to sort of take stock and obtain other necessary protections. It's a bit like a sort of legal health check. I often get instructed by families whose adult children are about to move to the UK to work for, say, Facebook or Google, for example, and they may be in different stages of a romantic relationship they may have fallen in love with an Englishman, um, for example, or an Englishwoman. I often see the sort of Meghan and Harry type relationship, the old wealth versus new wealth or fame versus sort of financial success, perhaps. And if they're already married, then a postnuptial agreement discussion may need to be had as extra protection for the family money being invested. If they're engaged, then a prenup is needed. And the reason for the importance of obtaining a nuptial agreement is that the English courts have a great degree of discretion on divorce to apply certain factors to work out what a fair outcome might be, um, which means that the money invested in the property is more likely to be vulnerable by claims from one party on divorce, for example, to meet their needs or to share um, when they've lived in the property as their main home. So having a nuptial agreement in place is really vital to protect wealth. 
And whilst there's many similarities between US and UK nuptial agreements, there are also significant differences of which families should be aware. I've got a number of cases where perhaps the nuptial agreement has not been signed properly in the US, which would risk it being invalid in both the UK and the US, or where the nuptial agreement signed in the US would be valid, but it's unlikely to be enforced there in this jurisdiction because of the unique approach of the courts here. And our team are often called upon to sort of rectify the situation and produce a belt and braces nuptial agreement, a bespoke nuptial agreement, which is robust, well, as robust as it can be going forwards to provide the family with the necessary protection. So what does it mean in England and Wales to do a prenup or a postnup properly and to make sure it's as enforceable as it can be? Well, families need to be aware that English nuptial agreements are not automatically enforceable, but they are given considerable weight if they're done properly. Both parties must freely enter into the agreement without undue pressure, what we call duress or undue influence. The couple must have a full appreciation of what they're signing. So independent legal advice is essential. The agreement must also be fair in the circumstances that the parties divorce. So there's a degree of sort of crystal ball gazing to be made in these discussions to ensure the agreements are robust. And it's also recommended that the agreement should be signed at least 28 days before the wedding. Again, to sort of stop any accusations this agreement has been um, under undue, undue influence or duress. And the good like thing a about, cooling off period. Like a, exactly, like a sort of cooling off period. The good thing about buying a property is that it in itself can trigger all of these considerations and is really the impetus for the couple to start to talk about these sorts of things before completion, i.e. there's a sort of time constraint to help them to get the agreement across the line, which is often lacking in postnuptial negotiations. Thanks, Rosie. Really interesting. So before we kind of wrap things up, I just want to throw it open to all of you to see if you have any closing words of advice. I think, um, Miri, this is a really sort of exciting area where people um, can find a property, fall in love with it and, and get carried away. Um, and I think it's always important to put my slightly fun sponge lawyer taint on things and say that there are lots of uh, traps for the unwary out there and, and that that those shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, I would just echo what Emma has said. And, and just the key thing from my perspective is come and talk to us from a very early stage. Don't leave it to the point where you found your dream house. Come and um, get onboarded as a client, have a discussion with us, and, uh, and we can work out the best way to um, structure it from a tax inheritance perspective um, and with Rosie's advice, if necessary, in terms of how the property is going to be held so that when your dream house comes along, we can pounce on it and secure it and know that everything is in place for um, um, a smooth completion. Thank you all so much for joining me today. So for further news and views from the firm, you can head over to our website, forsters.co.uk, where you can also find a guide for US purchases of UK residential property, uncovering the traps behind the transaction, which has been co-authored by my guests, Charlie, Emma and Rosie. Uh, You can also find us on all the usual social media channels, including LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can find them on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And until next time, goodbye.
Investors London or podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than More podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. <laughs>